This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. Of course, the show would not be complete without my partner in crime. Colin, what's up, man? What up, what up? So we have some news. What news do we have this? Do we depends have on some when, news? Depends yeah. on when this is dropping. Oh, so like, like got news. Let's read some reviews really, really quickly. Obviously, the number one way that you guys can support us, which by the way, you guys are absolutely fantastic. We've grown a thousand unique listeners the last two weeks. So that's two thousand unique a week. Least, yeah. yeah. So by the time this actually gets released, it could be much higher than that. Yeah. Um, so you guys are awesome. Thank you for sharing. Something that would listening. help us out a ton is we get a lot of messages and comments on LinkedIn about the about the podcast, and we get a ton of support. But if you guys could leave us an actual review on Apple or Google Play, whatever medium that you're Spotify, listening to the podcast, yeah, more. that's how that's how the podcast starts getting exposure, and we can start bringing some more eyes outside of oil and gas, and it just kind of helps the oil and gas ecosystem. So. If you can leave us a review, an actual review, I guess we'll go ahead and read one. We got yeah, a, go we got a great one here from uh, Jack. He said, "Colin, hello from Pittsburgh. I'm a serial five time entrepreneur and Navy veteran. I love the podcast. Keep up the great work, guys. Awesome, it's awesome. Thanks, Jack. Vet- veteran and serial entrepreneur. It's legit. It means we're legit if he thinks we're legit. I know. Legit, so. Also, so one more thing that we haven't talked about is that so you and I have been talking about doing a Q and A show. Yeah, and I don't think the world actually knows that." So there's a way that you can ask questions on the website. So oilandgasstartups.com, there's an ask a question section. So very similar to how Mark LaCour and I do it on, on Oil and Gas this week. We get a million questions a week in our inbox on LinkedIn. So you can either write us that way and say, hey, love for you to answer, the, ask, answer this question on the podcast, or you can just write it any other way. We want to do full, like just Q&A shows. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we've been talking about it, but I guess we got to get it out of our head and tell it can people be anything. To we can some t- questions. We can talk about there. tech. We can talk about starting an EMP. That's a question that we get almost every single day. Content marketing. I had content two people marketing. in the last two days ask me about content marketing for startups and oil and gas. So yeah, any yeah. questions? You can ask me what I fucking ate for breakfast. I'll yeah. answer it. <laughs> the point is to not try to stump us, but yeah. So if you guys have questions, just write in. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Also subscribe to our digital wildcatters mm. YouTube. We're growing as. Of now, the recording of this podcast, we're at 125 subscribers, so we're becoming big time. We're pretty much big time. At this point. <laughs> what we got on the show today, man? What are we doing? We are here with our buddy, John Farrell. What's up, man? Hey, n- nothing much. How are you guys doing? Good, bud. Glad you're here. Obviously, we met a few weeks back, just kind of through LinkedIn. I had heard of you guys for a while, obviously kind of like, you know, keeping eyes on the tech space, but I wasn't really really familiar with what you guys were doing and then i think i signed up for the free trial and then i was like super excited about it how'd you guys meet on linkedin i think i just kind of stumbled upon his profile to be honest with you You know i think it was just suggested it was a picture of you riding tortoise or something the otc are you no, serious? That was, that's oh, fucking, that was yeah. that's, that's the best <laughs> fucking thing anybody's that. ever told me on this podcast. <laughs> no, yeah. It came on, I said, follow, <laughs> done. So okay, so if if you're listening and you don't know, like one day, you know, my wife's pretty handy with Photoshop. I said, Hey, 
said OTC is coming up. I want you to Photoshop a picture of me riding Blastoise. Which is a Pokemon. Which is a Pokemon <laughs> out to an offshore rig. <laughs> That's actually the, the picture that comes up when Colin calls me now. It's still so, that photo. We haven't done it yet, but eventually, you know, I want to print out a canvas of that picture and hang it in the office. So... That's awesome. Maybe get a velvet one made. You, nice. Yeah, you are, like you just made my day with that comment. So <laughs> that's too funny. <laughs> so yeah, we linked up, and then we had you come into the office last week. When we walked through your software and stuff. So I was like extremely excited about it. I said we got to get this guy on the podcast to talk about because I think you have a great story too. Because it's a it's pretty non traditional for this space. You know, a lot of people that we talk to come from an oil and gas background. And it's similar to me too, you know, like prior to six years ago, I was not in oil and gas, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think you're just a worm, just a worm, man. So, (laughs) you know, your story resonated with, with me. So I think we could, um, let's start off with, with what you guys do high level, obviously. So you're the CEO of well database. What is your high level overview? And then we'll kind of dive into your background. Yeah. Yeah. So people, I mean, data, obviously a big deal these days in oil and gas and, We've had different vendors, different ways of getting in in the past, but the fact of the matter is it still can be hard to get what you need. It still can be hard to determine what's useful and what's not, and more than anything, it's expensive. So what we do, we automated processes, we pull it all together, put together one low cost, and our customers get the data they need, the price they need, and just a fresh look at what oil and gas data is doing. So it's all public data, so it's stuff that's been around, but again, you know, more out there than ever. We pull it all together for you. Cool. So you said that, so you've been in oil and gas for what, like 15 years now, something like that? Yeah, it's been 15, 18, something like that. And all by accident. You just ended up, you just got stuck and you just never left. Yeah. So I was coming out of the University of Texas and it was, you know, 2000. I'm a programmer. World is my oyster and dot com bust hits. Austin becomes a ghost town and I look around like I got to get out of here. So right down the road in Houston and I'm from Houston. So oil's calling and, you know, they're just getting around to building some reporting systems and stuff. So I go to work at Shell all the while thinking, you know, I'm a programmer. My friends from UT are going off to Silicon Valley, that kind of stuff. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to take a pit stop in oil and gas, check it out. And then never left. So, but, you know, it's been such exciting things here. and, And being that I came into it, in the 2000s and the early 2000s, you know, I've got to see a big transition over time about how people are dealing with software, data, and all the things like that. So, you know, I've stayed in the industry and I love it. And, you know, it's been one of those things of the accident to get into it. But at this point in time, I just have to accept I'm, I might just be an oil and gas guy. Mm-hmm. After 18 years, I yeah. think it's time to kind of come to terms. It's crazy <laughs> to think about. So when you came into it as a developer, early 2000s, we're like still in early stages of internet right was, we're like we're like in the tech booms hitting that's when the aol is getting big yahoo's getting big it's like so much opportunity yeah so much days. so much opportunity in that space what have you seen has changed and what hasn't changed as it pertains to oil and gas on the data side since then yeah so you know when we started it, it people were all jumping on board but that was the the internet in general you know people were building yeah. new apps and you know thinking about all this great stuff and then there was this pullback. It was like, all right, you know, the the dot com bust happened. You know, maybe this isn't isn't the greatest thing in the world. Let's kind of go back to basics and look at what we have. And then that kind of hung on for a long time. And so, I mean, five years ago, I'm looking at software, or probably ten years ago when we started Well Database. Really, is when it was. I'm looking at software. Doesn't look like it changed since the mid '90s. So we never took that big step in 2000 to really start, you know, get the ball rolling, modernizing everything. 
so it's interesting because it didn't adopt. It seemed like there was a push and then it came back and, and then we just stagnated for a long time. So, but, you know, data wise, there's, especially the big players are connect, you know, have been collecting more and more data to the point where they almost had to come back and say, what do we do with all this? We just have more data than we know what to deal with. And so yeah. uh, not actually utilizing that data, it becomes more of a liability than an asset, right? It does. And well, I think that's I how most companies treat it, unfortunately, because mm. they're not really sure what to do with that data. Well, and it's almost more dangerous if you de determine you want to do something with the data that's not logical, that doesn't put together. Yeah. You know, when you start using machine learning and you're feeding the model wrong, then all of a sudden it's dangerous. You can come up with answers that don't make sense. And then you get this pushback that, you know, your technology doesn't make sense. And then really it's a process. It's understanding the data and, and, and why things come out the way they are. So that stuff has, has been changing rapidly over the last five to 10 years. But, you know, there was a time in there between 2000 and say 2010 there, we were collecting tons of data and it was just going onto a shelf somewhere. It was going onto a server, a tape drive. When you look at any software in oil and gas, it's like, why does this shit look like it was developed in 2003? <laughs> because it was. <laughs> You're being generous. Yeah, I'm trying not to, you know, be too over overstating it, but you know, it's kind of when you think about that. I didn't even think about those issues back in the day in oil and gas, but you know, they weren't even thinking about how data can be utilized. They're thinking like, oh shit, we got this new email server. Like we can send internal emails and this is badass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, for us uh, at our age, it's kind of funny to even think back that that was a thing to be hyped up about because now I hate email. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what's really neat is that in the past, I've got to work with some guys who have, uh, just go back 40, 50 years in the industry and they talk about what happened, how they worked before computers, you know, the, the, the slide rule days and what they were doing. And so I think what we saw was when computers, you know, came on the scene, all of a sudden they're like, we don't have to do this stuff by hand anymore. We can feed it into the computer. And so some software started getting built, log analysis software, mapping, all these things. And then they're like, great, now the computer's doing it and we can just stop there. And that software just stayed the same for you know, decades sometimes and, you know, little updates, things like that. But, you know, when you come in in mid 2000s and 2005 and you look at a package that, you know, won't run on a 64 bit machine, you know, you've actually, you know, you're in bad shape. So, you know, moving those, the, the kind of cycles of oil and gas, it plays into the investment into the technology and, and the whole cycle is, is causes it to stagnate sometimes. But what we've seen with the downturn here recently is just this huge investment in efficiency technology. And that, that's been so exciting to watch. Do you think the downturn drives new technology adoption? Oh, absolutely. Especially this last one, primarily because we had this generational gap, you know, the shift change we all talk about. It's what we were seeing is that these older guys who were in the retirement time, downturn, I'm done with this, I'm retiring, early retirement packages, that kind of thing. So we had to bring in some young blood into it and did a couple things. One, we had to give them more tools because we lost all of this intelligence with these older guys. But then number two, the, uh, the younger, the next generation demands it. You know, you need the tools. We didn't grow up doing things by hand we grew up doing it on the computer and so mm -hmm. you know we have certain expectation levels of, of what software should be like and that 100%. old stuff yeah just not acceptable anymore so this last one i think drove it heavily i think it's actually kind of like a perfect storm you know low commodity prices forcing emps to really look at making operations and assets more efficient and then the crew change as well you know it's just kind of a 
variety of things coming together and really pushing it. But remember, I don't know if this was on the podcast or not, but when we talked to IBM, we got in a little, not an argument, but just like a, a little debate about whether the downturn forced adoption of a technology. And IBM said that they didn't believe that downturns or trends had anything to do with the adoption. And I was like, I disagree with you. I don't, I don't think that's right. I think that downturn very much kind of makes people look take a, a look inwards and say hey how can we do things better and then they'll start adopting new tech yeah well and you know it, it is different because this downturn did shift the age and i go and do demos for these management teams where everybody's in their mid-20s and up until I was in my early 30s, I was the youngest guy in the room every time. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I was 35 years old, still young guy in the room. And then all of a sudden now there's there's a new group of guys in there, a new group of, uh, you know, people growing and, and you know, they don't accept bad technology. They're, they really expect more. And that's what we're given. And that's driving all this. And it's great to see. I mean, when you're someone who's in tech. You, you want to see this, and it's just been pissing you off for the past two decades <laughs> that people are dragging their feet, not thinking forward, just constantly shitting on every idea you have about yep. automating or you know machine learning and those kind of things. So yep. this is, I mean, it's just exciting. It's disrupting that conventional wisdom that we've seen time and time again that they think that the low-hanging fruit or any extra capital that they may have is going to be devoted to drilling another well, right? When in reality, what we know is that the low-hanging fruit is drastic improvements in efficiency and productivity across the organization to where 2 to 5% in something could mean millions, if not hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, depending on your company, right? And you, you do that across each one of your in each one of your departments and each one of your processes and each one of your technologies. You know what's so funny about that point, though, is that, okay, so they start taking a look inward and they're like, okay, how can we make processes more efficient? How can we save time? But before it was them looking at technologies, it was them getting a motherfucker out there with a counter on a drilling rig and saying, okay, well, your connection times are, are too long. And I'd be out there every time. One, it pisses me off because companies want to promote safety, but then they have someone breathing down your neck saying, hey, you're not working fast enough. You need to make this connection faster. You know, fuck if it's safe or not. So I'd, I'd get a little angry on that point. Mm -hmm. But then it was just kind of like archaic to me. It's like, this is how you want to make your, like... This is how you want to make your operation more efficient. I mean, there's definitely technologies that you could be using in your back office, just a software, a SaaS that you could subscribe to. You don't have to have someone out here with a counter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. it's a total mindset, man. I mean, and it's easy. It's You visualize it, you save a dime, you save $100, save $1,000, but you know what could you do to save millions? Over the, It's just, mm -hmm. it's a mindset. You have to get out of the the ones and twos and gets into the bigger picture. Yeah. So with Well Database, are you guys in the same arena as what Drilling Info is doing with, with the terms of data that you're providing? Yeah, it's it's probably where most of our customers come out of the Drilling Info's IHS. Okay, cool. But, um, so yeah, we, we go grab data. We, we strictly work in public data. We don't do anything in proprietary data. We do do some analysis on our side, but we don't take any data that's proprietary and resell it. We take all everything in the public space. And we do that on purpose because when you get data out of Well Database, we consider it public data and it's yours to keep. And it's one of those terms that has always boggled my mind. All of these, all of our competitors, if you subscribe to the service, grab some production down, and you know, they lock you in for a year as it is at minimum, but then you cancel, they want you to purge it all. They want you to delete everything, get rid of anything they've ever touched. 
But this all came from the public it's, space. It's public anyway. source. Yeah, you can yeah. literally go look it up yourself. That's <laughs> it. And, and you know, you, you do. We do clean it up a lot. There's a lot of work that goes into making it usable. So, I, you know, it's not raw public data, but still, I mean. That's probably, honestly, companies taking advantage of people that don't fucking understand the concept of data and proprietary mm-hmm. data compared to public data. So they can, you know, kind of pull those things. But I think that you're getting a lot more knowledge in the industry of what actual proprietary data is and, and what's public. So absolutely. I mean, we, so you actually showed us a, a demo of your software and I mean, the user interface is great. I mean, there was all kinds of things that you can do. And I mean, that's been, I mean, you know, you just heard me complaining about it that when you look at some softwares that they look like they were developed in early two thousands. I mean, you guys, it's able to do a lot of real time production curves and all things like that. So is that something that y'all have put in a lot of time in is on the design of the user experience? Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing that, that, you know, you talked about my background and, and being a programmer. When we started Well Database, it's three co-founders. We were all developers. When did you guys start? We actually started, this is funny, we talk about the downturn, but, you know, in 2008, we had that recession, and oil, I don't know, was up at 150, 160, something like that, and it tanked all the way down to like 50 bucks then, Mm -hmm. which percentage-wise was nuts, but at that point in time, one of my co-founders was let go and go back a long time, and so we said, you know what, we've been talking about this data problem, let's jump in and see what we can do about it. So in 2009, we started, but we didn't, we built back-end systems for three solid years, him full-time, us kind of a side hustle deal. But then we went live with our product in in August of 2012, which is another great thing because you go through, we saw some evolution, we got feedback, kind of evolved our product. So it took you guys three years to get to MVP stage to where it could be implemented? It did because what our goal was to automate everything. And yeah. so we knew it was going to be a front-loaded effort. We knew that we were going to spend a lot of time building systems that will go out, will grab data, massage mm-hmm. data, will normalize data. We load it into a single model, all of those pieces. And like I said, fully automating it, it took us. I just, I just don't think the reason I was asking is because I don't think the majority of people understand how much time it goes into developing something like that. And, you know, Jake can attest to this with WellHub and you go, you know, you show someone where you're at and they're like, oh, well, this is just one dashboard. It's not that impressive. It's like, no, motherfucker. It's all the work on the back end to get the data to that dashboard is, is yeah, what took so much effort. I don't know, WellHub, I mean, it's a continuation, obviously, of GDS where so that's like six years of work and then building upon what, what Mark and Sparsh have both done with the careers over the last 10 to 20 years, mm-hmm. right? And then when we sat down with Kamal Farid, the guy who founded uh, Merrick Systems, and we showed him, and he, like, it was very gratifying for us because he understood looking at it that it wasn't, even though on the surface, like you said, it looks simple, he was like, no, I appreciate what the amount of hours that you guys have put into this, on, you know, especially on, like, all the work that we've done on the back end. Yeah. You know, like, the data model and all that kind of stuff. Like, it's extremely I mean, complex. I mean, and it's fair because, you know, we're, as a consumer... And it's really kind of twofold because you want the software to be so easy for the end consumer to use, but at the same time, they don't appreciate how much work is on the back end. I mean, like, look, like most people don't know how big of a machine Facebook is or, or oh. these social media platforms and how much data they are. I mean, just, it's crazy. All they see is this Facebook app or user interface, and that's all they know. They know their, their news feed. They don't understand the technology behind it. Oh, I know. And then, you know, like I was saying, a lot of my friends, they went off and working at Twitter or Slack and those kind of places. And they uh, they talk about data with me. And it's interesting because I'm we do big ish data, we say, you know, if we've got 
550 million production records and we're aggregating them on the fly. We're creating type curves, forecasts, all kinds of things. And, and it's, you know, it, it's a lot of work and it's challenging, but it just pales in comparison to some of these numbers at yeah. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I saw podcast. a screenshot. It was a screenshot of Twitter from 10 years ago. <laughs> and it's like insane. I don't even remember Twitter looking like that. I wish, man, I can't wait until we do our podcast on video. So like Jake, pull up that screenshot. <laughs> like Joe Rogan Jamie put, put some on the screen <laughs> I need some visuals <laughs> yeah so you guys started you know a few years back I know you had mentioned that whenever we met before that you guys kind of just bootstrapped it yeah you know? from the so gate. you guys spent that three years kind of building that MVP and then was it at that point you know once you guys were I guess ca- cash flow positive you guys kind of made the leap yeah and it took much longer than those three years so yeah okay. we we did this side hustle kind of thing which is a popular thing these days back then it was you know just working two jobs um, <laughs> but yeah we we built it out and you know how it is the software it just takes time and so we over and over and over and i'll never forget that you know we were getting ready to go live the next day and you know we were excited and everything and it rolls out I mean, zero people hit it and a little bit of a marketing mistake there, but we may, you know, we fixed that later on. But you know, it took some time and it took a lot of feedback because our initial, our initial site, like you talk about, if you, if you're not embarrassed by your first product, you launch too late. Mm-hmm. It's pretty embarrassing when you think about it. But we were kind of just throwing everything out there. We had all this data and that was awesome, but we didn't really provide the facilitation with the tools and everything to make something out of it. And so. We hit kind of flat in the in the early days, and so it took some time to grow that and to kind of mold and refine our product to the point where all of a sudden we started getting some good adoption. And so, yeah, it was end up being a, another year or two after that before finally took the job. Was that and, pretty discouraging for you guys? You know, to spend all that time working on this product, launch it, and then you get no no traction, no buzz, or did you guys just put your heads down and go back to work to develop it? You know, I think one of my co-founders was probably a little more discouraged than me. I, I'm. I'm a triathlete, but you know, it's one of those things you do when you do triathlons is that it all hurts and it's painful, but you just keep on going. And we knew, we knew what we had. We had used all the other competitors over time. We knew what they had. We knew what we had. We knew that there was a market for what we were doing. And so we did. We kind of just put our heads down and saying, okay, it fell flat. Let's just keep on pushing. Let's keep on talking and keep on, you know, getting feedback and growing and moving and molding and and now we're here and it's as exciting now. This is when it's good. So cool. it's perseverance. And you know, I've heard that lots from, from the startups. You know, you, everyone's got a rough patch and you got to just push on through it. You, as long as you got a good idea and you're listening to your customers, it'll get there. Yeah. So how long did it take you guys to get your first implementation, your first pilot? So we actually did get our first subscriber within a month of going live. But okay. being that Ours is like a more traditional SaaS model. It's monthly subscription. Now let's talk about the price because really it's cheap. No, it yeah, we we say inexpensive. <laughs> it's it is so yeah. It's high value. <laughs> so that was our goal from the get go. You know, there's a reason why we built all those automation systems. We could have just jumped right in and you know got some funding, hired a bunch of people, and charged the same price that everybody else is charging. But then what, what good is that? It's just another, another data vendor and you're just fighting on the same playing field. So what we did is we put our investment time in. And then when we went live, uh, there's a couple of different things we wanted to do. We wanted to have month-to-month subscriptions available because we know that in this industry there are times to explore and there are times to operate and you know financial, the service companies. Everyone's got a different purpose and a different use case. So 
being able to come in and out month to month when you need it and not when you not when you don't that was a big deal to us but then our price point you know because it was automated we don't have a lot of overhead we our three packages they're $100 a month $250 a month and $500 a month and so we really max out at $500 a month for what you can pay for our services for the portal and we'll do some custom data work and things like that and those are all different but but yeah I had a guy at a conference just yesterday telling me he's paying $14,000 a year and I told him, well, you know, our plan, $3,000 a year. And he said, well, what don't you do? Because you can't be doing the same things that the vendor's doing. And so we sat down, opened my computer, five minutes. He said, all right, I'm done. <laughs> so I, I, you guys need to market more because I didn't know this was here and this is awesome. So he actually signed up, started paying already. So it's, it's just easy now. I mean, we're coming in at a fraction of the cost. And being bootstrapped is one of the best ways to, to be able to do what we're doing because, you know, we don't spend money unless we have it because it comes out of our pocket. You know, you can't operate in the red, mm-hmm. at least not for very long, if you're bootstrapped. So, you know, that means that we keep our costs down and we are very responsible with what we spend on. But it also means that we can keep our, our margins steady. We can keep our price where it needs to be and, and all of our decisions surround making sure we bring that value. I think we actually talked about this in one of our recent episodes. I can't remember who it was with, but talked about bootstrapping versus raising capital and how much more aware you are of your burn rate when you're bootstrapped because just like you said the money's coming out of your pocket so you know it's kind of it is a curse when you have too much money and too much funding behind you like i see some of these scooter companies just raising hundreds of millions of dollars and i'm like man there's such thing as being overcapitalized i look at look at all the fucking icos billions and billions of dollars raised and not a single product made yep one of the things I know we talked about on the, I know I'd asked Tim and Ernst when we did the Blueberry episode, you know, I think a lot of startups and a lot of startup founders see raising capital as like this rite of passage as a startup founder. And I think it's easy to get kind of get caught up in that hype cycle of like, okay, you start a company, you get to MVP, you raise $3 million, you know, you're giving away X amount of equity, then you plan for, you know, a series A and then you, you know, it's just like, I don't know. It's it's become this this super hype thing that everybody has to do, and I think a lot of people overlook the fact that you're giving up so much of your company. And don't get me wrong, venture capital is great, and I think there's a lot of great use cases. It's almost of like rite of passage. It's like yeah. tech, tech bros. Like that's that's the main it's, goal is to raise capital. It's not actually like, to run or build a company, you know. And yeah, I think a lot of people think that that's the only option. That's the only way that you can do it. And I think sometimes that can be the easy way because it's not easy to necessarily run you know, do multiple jobs and do the side hustle thing and, you know, put in that three to five years. Not every product's that way. You know, a lot of times you can build something, you know, relatively quickly on the the B2C side, but on the B2B side, as we know, we know it takes years. Yeah. Especially in the software. Yeah. Especially in oil. Yeah. You know, yeah, the, you know, it's, it's a big time commitment, you know? So just for the founders out there, you know, that it's not always raising capital is not your, your only option. You know, it's a great option, but you should also consider, you know, could you possibly do this bootstrapped? Well, and when there's going to be times, and and I can attest to plenty of times, and I've looked at our, you know, felt like we were plateauing. Felt like if we just got some more capital, we could run out these ten other features. We could pull and bring on more developers. We could just blow this thing up to the point where I'll start reaching out to some people I know, and then it just the laundry list of what you need to do, the meetings, the numbers, and everything you're putting together. And you know, you need to be tracking your metrics as you're moving, so you can. But 
they are asking for so much detail and so much is a full-time job if you're going to raise capital. I don't think people understand that until they go through the process of how much bandwidth it takes to go raise capital. And honestly, you know, I, I understand now that I've been through the process. I understand why these companies do celebrate a win when they get the capital because that was a huge milestone to get that because so much work went into it. And, you know, you, you brought up a great point. You have to kind of look at that. Jake did that with Wellhub. He finally got to the point, you know, he, he raised uh, seed capital and then was going for some additional funds. And finally he's like, I'm spending too much fucking time on raising capital. I got to focus on building product and getting it out to market. So that's another thing that you have to look at is like, where can your time and resources be spent? Absolutely. Yeah. And when you're a programmer, it's even harder because you're like, all right, I can go get money to build all these features, or maybe I just put my head down and start working on it. (laughs) it, it, Yeah. And it's probably not, there's always a give and take there, but sometimes you're just like, screw all this. I'm just going to code. No, for sure. Yeah. When you're, when you're the guy writing the code, I mean, like me, I'm not a programmer. So, you know, maybe my efforts are best spent raising capital to hire devs. But if I'm that dude that can code, you know, knowing me, I'm probably just going to put my head down and not come out of my fucking room for 20 hours just coding. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you guys at right now? What are some of the, the challenges that you're seeing? You know, obviously commodity prices have come down in the last couple of months. You know, how's, how's that been kind of affecting the software industry as a whole in oil and gas and you guys specifically? So at this point where we're seeing it, it's actually, I think, kind of beneficial for us. Whenever we hit the real downturn and we were down in the 20s, it, it was nobody spend anything. It was you don't need data, don't get anything. Now that we've come out and we've been you know level, we haven't been blowing the doors down as far as commodity prices. Even this dip we took at the end of last year, we're kind of swinging back up. I think I'm seeing more people focusing on where they can be more efficient and and evaluating additional vendors. You know, I just talked yesterday to another group at a, you know, they spend six figures on data, and they've been doing it for ten years and. You know, we had a discussion about what we could bring. And for the first time, they're going to evaluate other vendors. And this is what I think the the current environment is driving. And so it's been pretty good. And I feel like it's a different mindset than it was in the downturn where people just weren't spending anything. Now I'm seeing people spend money, but being very cautious about it. And that's, I think, beneficial to our business as a whole. So what do you see as kind of like what's next for you guys? I mean, obviously, yeah. we, we've talked about, you know, obviously, as a being a developer, you know, you're wanting to put out new features and stuff. But company-wise, what do you think's next? Well, you With, know. Without any, don't disclose anything. Super confidential. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the great thing about what we did, and, and you have people on this podcast, and there are business out there that build tools off of data. and But that means they're going somewhere else to get their data, and they're bringing it in, and then you're building stuff on top of it, whether it's machine learning, analytics tools, AI, any of those things. Well, we have the data. And that's where, where we feel like we have a, a step up. We have the data. It's our data. We can do anything we want with it. We can partner with anybody we want with it. So, you know, getting that data, normalizing, getting in good shape feels like step one. Writing tools around it like what we have now, step two. And then beyond that, we're going to start talking about what can we bring to the table as far as machine learning? What can we start adding to? I mean, do you know that, I mean, a lot of times completion information it's pretty good on fracked wells and things like that. You get a lot of completion information, but depending on your state, you may not get much completion information at all, not even a completion date. So I have wells in, in Wyoming specifically. I was looking at the other day. They have permits. We have production. 
we have a completely empty completion record. So this well was completed, but we know nothing about this. Is it just because they don't require it to be reported? No, they do. It's We have just, just terrible data. We've, we've seen knows? it. Yeah. We've seen it. So, that, but that's what I was about to ask you. You're, you're touching on a topic. So like the integrity of data from public sources, you know, there's only so much that you guys can do because you're pulling in all this data from public sources. This is actually a message from my buddy Austin, who's an engineer. He's like, I wish I could place greater trust in public records. It could be, I could be indefinitely more productive if I didn't have to second guess and research everything off yeah. railroad commission and drilling info. And so that's, you know, I'm seeing firsthand that that's a pain point from engineers is that they're getting this data from public sources, but they don't know if it can be trusted. And fuck, Jake, we've seen that with, I don't want to call out the regulatory commission. I don't want them coming down on me, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, even their internal records are just like, how the fuck do you guys operate? And it's just such a headache. And so, you know, do you see any improvement to those processes in the future from the, the data providers that maybe that they'll start exporting some cleaner data sets? So you got kind of a double-edged sword there because you've got the data from in the public space. We can all look at it and we can all find the holes in it, right? So, but then now you want us to fix it for you. That's great. And now though, we're getting to the point where, how did you fix it? What did you do to fix it? What data are you giving me? Can I trust it? What was your process? And in this industry, there's black boxes across the board. Mm -hmm. Nobody is sharing how they come to their processes of delivering this data that is now cleaned and normalized. And that's something completely opposite from the way we, I mean, we're, like I said, we're programmers, we're open source guys. We want to share the everything. I mean, we, I mean, we've tried to go out there and, and you know, they'll put data consortiums together, but we, we want to do more than that. We want to like post out completely free data to get people back and forth some, some uh, communication and try to build a better data set. But to answer your question about what we do is that, we have so much data. I mean, millions of wells, hundreds of millions of production records. And if you've ever done any machine learning, then you know if you have a complete data set in some areas, then that's how you train your model to help determine how these things lay out and to do, help both do infill and predictive analysis. And that's kind of the step that we're taking right now. Even. Gotcha. So we're not making stuff up, but we're using the good data points to help augment the bad data gotcha. points. And we're, you know, the cool thing about our data is that we, we have aggregation across like in a million different ways. And we have this all databased in different ways. So we can break down by field, by formation, by operator, by original operator, current operator, by date, by well bore type. And when you are able to aggregate all that data and then feed a model that way, then you are able to come at it from any different direction to come with a more, a more clean answer. I mean, operator strategies affect things, you know, mm -hmm. the drill timing of year affect thing. I mean, there's all kinds of things that go play into it. And since we have such a big data set, then we can take the cleanest of the cleanest data we have and use that to help build a model to augment the, the bad data. And that's, it's a process for sure, and it's what we're actually part of what we do already. But the difference between us and some of the other competitors is that we're very open. We'll talk about it, and mm -hmm. whenever we analyze or whenever we add data, we always give you the original reported data and our analyzed data. We never say, yeah, this is it, just trust us. We give you all the pieces we did, we used to make the data. Cool and the data we made from it. So, so you guys are very transparent in the process. That's it. And you have to, though. You, you can't make decisions. These are millions, if not billions of dollars being decisions being made on this data. And you said it yourself, people don't trust it. How can mm -hmm. you make that kind of decision off of data you don't trust? 
Absolutely. So, you know, that's really interesting. I didn't think about machine learning kind of bridging the gap, you know, at least short term and taking all the data sets or data points and, you know, being able to create a model because we do have a ton of data. So that is it is Well, and it's practical. You know, I love a tech as much as the next guy. And I like these, these ideas that we can find this silver bullet, tell us exactly how to make the best wells. But at the end of the day, there are practical applications that are much Absolutely. smaller in scale, but super important and they need to be taken and that's part of what we're doing now and and beyond that the um one of our biggest things and that's that's honestly how just all of oil and gas tech is as a whole is everyone wants to talk about machine learning and analytics and it's like look guys we got some data problems that we gotta solve first so let's get it but you know i'm really interested to see who takes on the effort of cleaning up the data from the source from the providers and we've talked about this on our show several times that i think blockchain can revolutionize a lot of that, you know, through automation and smart contracts and really kind of bring some transparency to that process to where, you know, you're not even having to worry about the the data being clean when it's coming in because it's clean from the source, but we're a long ways away from that. So we have to figure out solutions before them. But that's a really good point about using machine learning in that application because honestly, I didn't think about that as, as using that as a method to kind of model out. Yeah, it's yeah. not extremely sexy or anything, but it's something that's it's practical. Yeah, needs to be done. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you do it and you get a good answer, it's actually really rewarding because now we're filling in data. And you go look at the EIA and the way that they, you know, create their data and they do the best, you know, they, they're very smart and they do the best they can, but there's huge holes in methods. And whenever we are able to encapsulate as much data as we do, we feel like we can come with a more solid and consistent answer. Mm-hmm. I've heard of people using machine learning on you know we we get so focused on once we actually have the data, but I feel people using machine learning on actual data quality and data cleansing on that actual process to clean that up. Obviously, training that model over and over, and over time, which I would think would be something that you could do. I don't know if you guys have looked at that or not. Yeah, no, that's that's kind of rolls into what we're talking about. It, it really is because what you're doing is is fixing holes in data. You know, it's all in the same model. A lot of times, just, it's basic stuff. It's like the nomenclature of how the how the well is named on different documents and the API numbers. Sometimes they leave out the state code and sometimes you have to put the state code back in. And it's like super simple things, right? Or if you have like a, you have a well that's like Acme A and then you have a well Acme A1, is it a different well or is it a different zone? Is it the same well? We don't know, you know? And yeah. so, well, and that's, a, you know, that's another thing, you know, how buzzwords are great in, in the industry. So machine learning is everything to everyone. At the end yeah. of the day, I mean, we have millions of lines of code that help do those things, you know, and they take each source and they handle it separately. And that's actually pretty important because, yeah. you know, if you want to turn to everything into apples, then you need to basically understand state or source by source. It was not state. We take sources all over. So we do all the agencies, the state agencies, USGS, Frac Focus, UT lands, the Arizona geothermal database. I mean, we get data from anyone and anywhere we can. As long as it's public, we try to get it into our system. But the way we handle it is that every source has its own code base. And that's where we take it, we model, we clean, we help bring everything together. And then it all funnels into the single model where powers our site, our exports, everything else, our analytics. So each each source gets its own code base and it helps that that piece. So, you know, if we notice that example West Virginia and all of a sudden they're like well they stopped putting their lease names in the farm name field or whatever on some sheet we go make a rule add it in rerun the system and it's all updated it's kind of how our code works and it allows us to make quick changes and fixes like that and and so it's one of the parts of being automated that was key to how do we work Mm. Mm. 
Is there anything that you guys would change knowing what you know now? Anything you'd do differently? Maybe not in the actual product itself, but maybe just the process of you know, running the company from, from, from day one till now. God, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what it is. It's just number one. I was thinking about this last night. We all came. It was like we're all three software guys. We, we've seen these businesses come out, these softwares come out out of nowhere and hit millions and hundreds of millions of users. And, and we all had this idea, kind of if you build it, they'll come. And it was just not the case for us. I told you how we fell flat. Because we were focused so hard on the product, on making sure that we had a great product, great technology, we forgot to market it. It was just missing. We missed that piece. We probably could have used a fourth partner to come in and to be that sales and marketing guru. And you know, What did you guys do to actually market it? It's all organic and word of mouth. I okay. walk around and talk to people a lot, okay. which we talked about this the other day. I'm the odd developer that likes to talk to people. So yeah, I'm that like, is a strange combination. Yeah. <laughs> I'm either on or off, though. It's either I'd love to I will talk and talk and talk, or I'm going to put my head down and put headphones on and no one talk to me. I'm just going to code instead. Yeah. So it's one or the other, but that's kind of, we had this Honestly, realization. like one of the biggest questions or interests that we see from startups in oil and gas spaces on the business development and marketing side, because... A lot of people understand their product. They understand. I mean, oil and gas is an engineering-based business, right? Yeah. So you have all these engineers, and they're engineering-minded, and they're like, we don't know how to sell, and we don't know how to market. And so it's naturally like, okay, well, let's just sponsor a clay shoot, or let's just throw up an advertisement, or let's get a booth at NAPE. Or if, if we're going to hire a sales guy, it's like, let's get a sales guy who has a great book of business, right? Yeah. It's not necessarily what are their skills. It's like, who knows the most people? And yeah. so they're essentially trying to buy potential clients by hiring the sales guys which is not really the greatest way to do that no no and that's the one thing like i said i would change i would have this mindset from the get-go and now we do a much better job i try to get myself out there a lot and and i got the short straw so i'm the one who's got to go out and sell and and talk to everybody and do demos and things like that hey man that's why you're sitting here with us on, that's it on, no. on the podcast you, you get out there and that's it. No, and so, but I would have done that from the get-go, though. I would have, yeah. and that's what I would have changed. I would have dedicated a good chunk of the time to building buzz, marketing, sales, building relationships even before the product came out, that kind of thing. And you're right, the people who are making products, who startups in oil and gas are all technical-minded, all focused on making the best product, and that's great, but you got to have the business side with it. And it was mm -hmm. a mistake for us and, and something yeah. that we've, you know, hopefully have gotten past now, but... Yeah, that's what I would have changed. I know one of the things you mentioned earlier was listening to the customer, right? And how important that is. And that's something that I know I've probably said it a million times on this podcast or on Willing Gas this week. But one of the things that we've done with WellHub is we've always gone back to the market. I think like almost every other quarter is kind of like our, it's a routine thing that we do. We go back to the market and essentially survey them and say, hey, here's kind of what we're working on. I'm not pitching them. I'm not selling them anything. It's like, hey, we're, here's what we're working on. Let's talk through the problems that you guys are currently experiencing to make sure that we're building something that is still going to provide value to them. Right? It's, a, it's like a checks and balances, right? Even though that we have the experience and we know the market and we all have our own unique experiences and we're pretty well-rounded, it's still, if we build this, are people going to buy it? And is it going to be actually useful for us? Because I, especially with like GDS, where we spent a year building a mobile product that nobody used, <laughs> you know, and it was, a, it was extremely time consuming. It took us away from things that people actually wanted to buy and it was a huge failure. And so it was like, well, I never want to do that again. So it's, I always want to go back to the market and, and just check ourselves. Right. Right. And then from there, and obviously with, with you guys being, I would consider like, you know, it's a small shop. So like jet skis turn fast and cruise ships don't, you know, whenever you're listening to the market, I'm sure that you guys could as you have requests for new features and stuff like that, you guys can implement that 
you know, relatively quick, oh, probably a lot faster than other vendors. I oh, would imagine. crazy faster. But, and that's, yeah. and we take a couple of different approaches to it. I'm glad you, glad you brought it up because we, uh, we actually implemented an idea board on our website where we take mm. in people's ideas, that's people smart. vote on them and things like that. You, Is it like upvotes and stuff? Like, yeah, like that's a it. Or and, and then once it hits a, a level, then we start interacting with them. We start talking about trying to define what it needs to do. And it's, it's all wide open. And someone said, well, aren't you telling all your competitors what people are looking for? Like, I don't care. It's like you said, they, it'll take them twice as long to build as it will for us because we're just small, nimble, we can get things done. But we put it out there and we listen. But the other thing we do is that when someone comes in and they give us the feedback, we try to see through the problem and get to you know the root of it because so many people in this industry are used to, they have a problem and they want to fix for it, but what they don't realize they need to take a couple steps back sometimes and be like, okay, so this is a base of a problem and what you really want is something a little bit different you just have never been given it before. You don't know that that's really, but your goal is X, and this is a way we can help you get there. It's maybe not be the traditional way, but it's a way we can get there and maybe mm-hmm. be faster and more efficient. So it's really a great dance with our customers, and, and all of our probably, I mean, 90% of our current features have come from customer feedback and that that's back awesome. and forth. And so it, it definitely drives everything we do. I think a lot of people underestimate the power of small teams and how being small is actually a major benefit and a strength. Like, so if people don't know, like Windows 10 was completely redesigned from ground zero by three guys, right? And if you don't know anything about Windows, that's the best operating system they've put out like ever. You know, <laughs> it's completely been redone. I'm, I still don't use Windows, but I'm just a good analogy that you can do a lot with, you know, a few really, really good developers because think about it. I mean, think about it. You get gigantic development teams and then you get people arguing about what features need to be done and priorities and, and who's doing what in sprints. And then there's the, the minutia of all the different meetings and stuff that you have to have. You just can't move as fast the bigger your team gets. Absolutely. And it's one of those things that's hard to capture. If you haven't done it, it's really hard to see. I actually had a customer come in from a major service company and he's like, so, you know, we get... This vendor, we were talking to them, they have 95 developers on staff. How are you doing what they're doing with your tools? Does everything there? Because I does. don't have 95 developers yeah. on staff. And just like it's, it's possible. Yeah. And yeah. You, you do. You, you work faster. You're more nimble. You, in this day and age, the way tech works and the way development works and these sprints and the way we, we kind of program, and we throw things out there a lot of times. And, and we, get, we get rough stuff out there in beta and alpha and beta programs. And then we refine it. And it's like a... A process, a moving process that helps us build things faster and, you know, without having to go back and redo it because we screwed up the first time running through it. So it's just the way development is done, the agile kind of method, the way you, you know, small sprints, get feedback, go again, that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. it helps have a small team. It definitely helps have a small team. Yeah. What's kind of wrong with like the big corporate companies, you know, service companies, especially in the software space, they want to develop software and they come in and suffocate startups and breathe the very air that startups live off of. And the startups are the ones that are going to be solving these problems or the teams that can move fast and adapt to the market and what the market wants. And so that's why sometimes I have a like, sour attitude towards the big companies that are trying to develop products. It's like, motherfucker, just, so dedicate, much smart. Yeah, just, just dedicate some resources to a startup and let them <laughs> figure it out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know how it is. The best things that the big companies end up making are the things they buy from exactly. startups. I mean, that's, and whether or not they ruin it afterwards is another story, but that's where all the best stuff tends to come to in my opinion. Definitely, definitely. Well, guys, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm hungry as a I'm motherfucker, starving. and I'm John hungry. offered to take us to lunch, so I'm about to cut this off real quick. <laughs> John, 
Where can people find you? You're on LinkedIn. Oh yeah, LinkedIn and every social media platform. Every LinkedIn, social. Instagram, Facebook, WellDatabase.com. I'm gonna add you right after this then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, so, we're everywhere. Cool, man. Cool. Yep. So if you want to reach out to John, feel free to reach out to him on any of those mediums. Man, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Go, 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 go.